The global north's insatiable appetite for the latest fashion, coupled with gargantuan marketing budgets to continue to promote that kind of consumption, has contributed to massive amounts of clothing waste and pollution. The ripple effect has greatly impacted countries in the global south. I'm Rebecca Burgess, the founder of a California-based nonprofit called Fibershed. Learn more on the Weaving Voices podcast, a Whetstone Radio Collective podcast. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. West Africa was the center of cotton production as early as the 11th century, but we often don't hear about this history. When we do hear about Black people in cotton, it is almost exclusively through the lens of slavery in the Americas. However, Tropical Africans were enslaved in no small part because of their expertise in agricultural cultivation and their experience in textile manufacture. In his book, Pre-Colonial African Material Culture, my dad, Baba, has a chapter specifically on textile manufacturing. One was, you know, that kind of old, that demon that's still inside of me of Africans, you know, of the Tarzan movies and Africans running around almost naked are running around wearing raggedy animal skins. I mean, even when Africans wore animal skins, they were not raggedy. They tended to be very well made. But textile manufacturing in particular, you know, I talk about bark cloth, which is not technically a textile. Textile manufacturing involves weaving in particular. It fascinated me because what's clearly the case is that as early as 500 BC, People in West Africa were weaving something. Now we know that from an archaeological culture in Nigeria, the Nok, N-O-K culture, which was long seen as the earliest ironworking culture in West Africa. Now it's turned out not to be the case, you know, but it was like 500 BC. It's in Nigeria. For some context, in 500 BC, the entire world population was 100 million, and only 15 million humans inhabited the Western Hemisphere. All to say, Textile cultivation and production in tropical Africa is ancient and has a long history. My name is Teju Adisa Farrar, speaking to you from the unceded territory of the Ohlone people. Welcome back to Black Material Geographies. Throughout the continent of Africa, humans were producing fiber and creating textiles in a way that we would now consider regenerative. For several centuries, most products were created using only local natural materials because that's what was mostly available. From batik fabric to mud cloth, there are thousands of traditions in tropical Africa that use natural fibers to create cloth and use plants to dye them. Mud cloth dates back to before the 12th century and originated in the country now called Mali. The Bambara people created and perfected this process. The Bambara word for mud cloth is bogolan fini. Bogo means clay or mud, lan means by way of, and fini means cloth. Even in the language, it describes the materials used in the process. Baba explains the process of how some fabrics were made in pre-colonial Africa. The whole business of making cotton textiles, the types of looms, 
um, that kind of double-headed loom, which was first invented in, in Iran and Persia centuries ago, and it spread throughout you know, West Asia and North Africa as a result of the spread of Islam. That, that all came in one package. The people who adopted this technology modified it. They took that loom and they transformed it. So rather than producing wide strips of cloth, for example, they tended to produce very narrow strips of cloth, long, narrow strips of cloth, which they then wove together. Which is how blood cloth is made also. Yes, yes. I mean, because that, that's the way that it gets transformed in Africa. And then, you know, something like mud cloth, for example, the way that dyeing takes place is also something that's developed locally. So the technology is introduced a thousand years ago, but very quickly it's adapted to local tastes and, you know, the availability of things to use as dye. Indigo dye, for example, is very common in West Africa. It comes from two different plants. And that was something that was mastered in West Africa, particularly in the region that now covers most of northern Nigeria and in adjacent parts of Niger. Primarily the Hausa people developed this type of, of um, indigo dye, which became very popular throughout the Islamic world. And some of the cloth found its way in Spain because it was so this really lustrous, deeply dyed indigo. So well before the transatlantic slave trade, artisanally made African textiles were finding their way around the Eastern hemisphere of the world. Beyond textiles, the landscape of Africa has been transported around the world to benefit all of us. It is really not an exaggeration to say that all of us have a piece of Africa in our homes. The world owes a debt to Africa for the resources that have been extracted that we all interact with and use on a daily basis. Approximately $41 billion leaves Africa every year, but when put in context of the overall GDP of Africa, it's over $7 trillion. One of the most well-known resources extracted from Central Africa is cobalt, which is a mineral used in nearly every smartphone, laptop, and electrical vehicle battery. Most of the world's cobalt comes from the Congo, which sits on top of more than 3 million metric tons of cobalt, which is about half of the planet's supply. The Congo's resource-rich lands have been plundered by Western powers for centuries, the Congo was a colony of Belgium until 1961, and under King Leopold II, as many as 10 million Congolese were killed. Some refer to this as the rubber terror. It has been called that because most of the violence and killing was done to extract natural rubber from the Congo for export, mostly to Europe and other places in the West. Kenyan artist Tahir Karmali's series called Strata thinks about this extraction of materials from Africa and who benefits from it. I'm just really interested in this notion of like um, extraction of material from one location to be burnt or used in another place that eventually in the long run affects the environment and the sort of ecology of which that material has been mined for like the betterment of the simplicity of you know people's lives outside of that particular place. And then now kind of thinking about it in a larger scale, just sort of how much 
Africa in general, especially sub-Saharan Africa, are experiencing these problems of uh, you know climate change and climate degradation around them for pretty much something that a lot of the people that live in that part of the world are not responsible for. It's like an unfortunate reality where materials are extracted from one place, burnt in another place for the betterment of other people, and then the degradation of like the landscape from the people that those materials were originally extracted from, which is just a terrible reality, honestly. And so the Strata series really kind of focuses on that particular aspect of how like supply chain works and like supply chain economics works and then how these materials are transported from one place to another. And so that's basically kind of like the impetus of like thinking about the Strata series, especially when it comes to sort of like mining and extraction of materials from the Congo specifically. As with most extraction, the degradation takes place on the land, our physical environment, and the humans who are forced to provide the labor. The violence done to the earth to extract the resources that create the materials of our lives has also been done to Black bodies whose livelihoods and lives depend on our consumption. When we look at material culture, we have to understand not only its impact on the physical environment, but also the impact on our social and cultural environment. So while cobalt is central to the technological architecture of our everyday lives, Tahir thinks of textiles as part of human architecture in our everyday lives. Well, I think textile is like our primary architecture, right? Like the first thing that really, when you think about the structures that surround us in terms of protection, the first thing that you put on your body is is a textile. And so I think that I like using textiles because in its abstraction because it so immediately references the body and uh, anything to do with like fibers or anything that we put close to ourselves. And also I really like textile because of its ability to sort of, you know, take different forms and channels in physical spaces, right? And it's easier to sort of use textiles to reference the body, especially if you look at a lot of my work, they have this sort of uh, more portrait versus like the landscape um, orientation. So it's definitely to do with how close we are to interacting with these materials. Everybody, but most people in the world are always constantly interacting with these like fibers and textiles. And what is the material that, you know, surrounds it? You know, and also like, especially with textiles, like what's really interesting is how how all of them are just made so differently and how a lot of people are very unaware of how textile is made or even like cotton or a lot of people actually, they can understand that cotton is grown, but they don't really understand, you know, necessarily how cotton becomes something, right? Or even silk or like how even like raffia or kuba cloth or even mud cloth for that matter, you know, literally that's cotton. But like, you know, a lot of people don't really understand how textiles come into being, which I think is... It's interesting as a way to sort of teach people about how textiles are actually made, but then also like pair it with a story that with, which, which has a larger context. One such textile that Tahir works with is kuba cloth. Kuba cloth has a long history in East and Central Africa. Like mud cloth, traditional kuba is created using plants that grow naturally in the region in which it is made. 
Kubo cloth is basically a raffia product. So it's made from raffia. So it's very close to sort of like a palm based product. So that's basically dried and woven together and then beat so that it becomes sort of soft, like, like a cotton almost. And typically used for either room dressing or dressing architecture, like interior adornment, also used for uh, ceremonial performances and purposes. So it's something that's like very dear to the Kuba kingdom and Kuba tribes. And it's typically dyed with uh, a type of root of which I should actually have on hand. It's a kind of, how do I say, uh, root dye. And it's called tulle, actually. And it comes from also a fruit as well. And so they believe a lot about that dye holds like some elements of spirituality. And so some of it is dyed. And it's interesting because it's a collaborative process between men and women as well in the tribe where the men sort of weave and beat the cloth together. Well, the women weave and then the men, the men beat the cloth and then they harvest the raffia itself. And then it's like later adorned uh, and dyed by the women. And it's kind of interesting because the cloth itself, how they decide to sort of create the patterns is very modernist and like it has these sort of abstract forms that are not necessarily something that you would typically associate with what the west would typically associate with like african pattern making and they're just really incredibly beautiful especially the um, the traditional ones like the really old ones are very interesting nowadays you see a lot of kuba cloth you know in interior design you see it in like restoration hardware Similar to collective closets, Tahir's art brings traditional artisanal African practices into modern conversations about aesthetics. Just as mud cloth has become a popular home decor trend without any mention of its West African origins, you've probably seen a contemporary imitation of kuba cloth and not even known. and like all of these sort of upscale like furniture businesses and stores. And so they have these like, they make cushions out of it. They make like all these kind of things. But what they're using isn't sort of like the traditional authentic way of actually making it. It's sort of this kind of like a short process. So it's like similar to how you have fast fashion. There's also fast interiors. So they just don't take the time to sort of work with villages and work with people to actually kind of make it. So they kind of develop like a you know, appropriate the the pattern making side of it and a little bit to do with the raffia. I guess they use a little bit of raffia, but the way that they treat it, it's like a thicker weave. It's like uh, not necessarily as fine or as refined as like traditional kuba cloth. What is part of the process of creating the traditional kuba cloth that you can identify as being different from this manufactured kuba cloth? Well, you see, like, they have this really thicker sort of warp and weft. The warps and the wefts of the, the textile are, like, thicker, so they're less refined. In kuba cloth, when you, like, pull apart the leaves of the raffia after it's dried, they would actually pull thinner strands versus thicker strands, right? And so you would have, like, thinner strands of raffia, which makes it sort of softer, and um, more malleable. And then that would then be later beaten until it becomes soft and then the fibers are broken. So like the horizontal fibers go in one direction. Um, once those are beaten, they kind of like separate even further. So then it actually feels very similar to a raw silk or like a raw 
cotton or thin cotton material and it bends easier and it has a better drape and then it feels better on the body. But what you have with like these other fast interior, yes, they would use raffia, they would use, you know, these materials, but you'll have like a wider warp and weft. So you can actually visually see the weaving itself. But like the traditional Kuba cloth, you can, you'll have to go really, really close to it to actually see the actual weave in the textile itself. Authentic Kuba cloth is made by people from the Kuba tribe. The process is not fast and requires a lot of skill. Often when traditional African culture is appropriated, the version that results is much cheaper and less refined. But even before cultural appropriation, colonial powers literally took material culture out of Africa. Kuba cloth is one example. Well, I think like for the most part, like when you see commercial Kuba cloth, like um, things in like interior design stores, very few of them are actually from the Kuba tribes or the Kuba kingdoms, right? Because actually a majority of them are acquired, well, not acquired, but were stolen and placed in museums like across the world, right? So a lot of the ones that you see in, in, in interior stores that would either be made somewhere in China or like some sort of fast producing factory country in, in Africa. I can't imagine restoration hardware or anyone actually going to a village and waiting like years for the amount of product that they need because it is a very slow process. About how long does it take to produce a garment, for example, or a large piece of cloth that you might use for an installation? Well, for me, it took like a year to get all of the pieces of kubo cloth that I needed. They're using this primarily for their own traditional ceremonial and adornment purposes. I, I, there might be some villages uh, and some people who have managed to sort of turn it into an export business, but there's no way that you can actually get that refined level of kuba cloth to a large market like restoration hardware or like places that have such a high turnover. But like you would be able to go to an antique store or like some places in like here in Brooklyn that specifically have African textiles and those would be incredibly expensive pieces of textile compared to, you know, what would be sold in a more sort of commercial space. In the Western world, we walk around consuming culture that has originated on the continent of Africa with little or no recognition given to indigenous Africans who cultivated and developed aesthetics that so many humans around the world appreciate today. The exclusion of pre-colonial Africa's contributions to the world is a result of racist ideas developed to justify looting Africa and enslaving Africans in the Americas. Baba's book aims to challenge the stereotypes of Africa's inferiority. The first half of the book simply looks at the development of the ideas about Black inferiority. The first half deals with that and how these ideas get into when African history begins to develop, people begin to pay attention to it. In the second half of the 20th century, you begin to get African history classes. This notion of Africa has all of these ideas in it. 
these racist ideas that come from the past. So what the first half of the book does is it follows the development of these ideas and then it attempts to refute them. But in order to refute them, of course, you have to provide evidence of that. And that's where the second half of the book comes in. It looks at these different aspects of material culture, African farming, agriculture, seeing as being primitive and back. You know, that has to be addressed and it does. Um, the idea that African metallurgy of all things was, you know, somehow primitive. African made better steel than Europeans did for centuries. For centuries, they made better steel, better iron. The technology, the furnace technology was more advanced. The methods of producing different iron slash steel of different qualities. I mean, all that stuff was there. So when Europeans first appeared in Africa, they didn't have anything to teach Africans about making iron. When we look to the past, we are able to understand why certain things now are overlooked and intentionally ignored. Thinking about materials, be it intellectually as Baba does, using art as Tahir does, or in your brand as Collective Closets is doing, gives us insight into our current realities. Any way of making something in this kind of old school or traditional way has always fascinated me. And I don't think that necessarily to talk about our contemporary issues do we have to use contemporary materials uh, to do so. I think that you can critique the world around us still using these older sort of strategies. And I kind of like that. I mean, it's not that I'm like a Luddite in any way, you know, I, I do think that technology has some benefits. But, you know, I think about how do we make people understand that there is a materiality and a humanity behind all of these particular machines that we use day to day. You know, because for the most part, a lot of them kind of exist in our world in this kind of alien way. Like if you think about how you open an iPhone box or like how you would uh, engage with an LED screen, it just feels very removed from sort of a uh, tangible human reality. So I like this idea of like converting these materials into something that is so immediately attached to our body because essentially they are actually made from our planet and they are actually helpful, but also very harmful at the same time, like everything else around us. It's time for the wind down. I invite you to take a deep breath and stretch your body. Release tension in your shoulders, jaw, neck. Taking a moment to reflect on and process our conversations today. Our journey into traditional African textiles and artisanal approaches to fiber our journey of honoring the earth underneath the continent of Africa that all humans benefit from. Let's just take a few moments to reflect on the themes we dove into today. I invite you to take a deep breath and thank yourself for listening to something new today. 
I invite you to take a deep breath and reflect on this debt we owe to Africa. To the humans whose labor creates our material realities. They are the ones we owe our lifestyle to. Thank you to the land from which the world's resources come, Africa. Thank you for caring about Africa's innovative ancient past and honoring its future. Thank you for listening, learning, and experiencing the material geographies that we are all made of. You can subscribe to Black Material Geographies anywhere you get your podcasts. Black Material Geographies is part of Whetstone Radio Collective. This podcast is a team effort. Thank you to the Black Material Geographies team, my producer, Tiffany Roger, audio editor, Ray Royal, researcher, Haven Obasalase, and intern, Kai Stone. I'd also like to thank Whetstone founder, Stephen Satterfield, Whetstone Radio Collective head of podcast, Celine Glazier, sound engineer, Max Kotelchuk, associate producer, Quentin LeBeau, production assistant, Amelisa Yuting Ko, and sound intern, Simon Lavender. With music by Philip Kalechi Namdi Iro. You can learn more about this podcast at whetstoneradio.com, on Instagram and Twitter at whetstoneradio, Subscribe to our YouTube channel, Whetstone Radio Collective, for more podcast video content. You can learn more about all things happening at Whetstone at whetstonemagazine.com. <laughs>